The people that have really influenced me personally are folks that I've been lucky enough to work with that have inspired me and made me, you know, more inquisitive, made me want to ask, ask those questions. <laughs> Hello there, and welcome to the first episode of Voices of Greater Yellowstone for 2022. This is your host, Kristen Kuhn. We have so many great guests lined up for you this year, and we're kicking it off with the amazing Blakely Adkins. Blakely is a former wildlife technician and grizzly bear viewing guide and current Volgano Foundation Wildlife Program Associate for the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. This episode is called Elk in Paradise, so clearly we're going to be talking all about a herd of elk vacationing on a tropical beach. Okay, not really, but we are going to learn more about the incredible elk herds that frequent Montana's aptly named Paradise Valley. If you've ever visited Yellowstone through the park's northern entrance at Gardner, you've passed through the epically beautiful Paradise Valley on your way to or from Livingston, Montana. Blakely, from her home base in Livingston, focuses on wildlife issues in Paradise Valley. She works with ranchers on reducing conflicts with wildlife and collaborates with partners to find new solutions for barriers to wildlife migration and movement. In this episode, we'll chat specifically about what the Greater Yellowstone Coalition is doing in Paradise Valley for the iconic elk herds that call this place home. We'll cover innovative ideas like elk occupancy agreements, you'll learn more about those later, and learn about how Blakely is working with other organizations, agencies, and individuals to reduce wildlife vehicle collisions in the valley and keep both elk and humans safe. The Greater Yellowstone ecosystem is an amazing region. Its mountain peaks, roaring rivers, and charismatic wildlife have inspired and provided for humans since time immemorial. With Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks at the heart of it all, the ecosystem spans 20 million acres across parts of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. Whether you live here or have just passed through, you know just how remarkable this place is and why it should be protected for years to come. So let's learn more about elk in Paradise Valley. Here we go. Easy start. Just go ahead and state your name and current position for us. I am Blakely Adkins, and I'm the Volganau Foundation Wildlife Program Associate for the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. Great. And what kinds of things does a Volganau Foundation Wildlife Program Associate for the Greater Yellowstone Coalition do day to day? Yeah, so um, I've been with the Greater Yellowstone Coalition for under a year now, but in that exp- in my experience so far, it's kind of ever-evolving, but main projects we're working on right now, or that I'm specifically working on, are implementing wildlife crossings on Highway 89, which run through the Paradise Valley in Montana, so between Livingston and Yellowstone National Park. And then also working on conflict mitigation, mostly with grizzly bears as they expand their range and come further into places that maybe we haven't seen as many of them within the ecosystem as well as places within the ecosystem where they've they've been for a long period of time. Yeah, it's a lot of, of course, wildlife-focused work. It's right there in the, the title. Um, so we're definitely going to spend some time talking about your work at GYC, but around the GYC office, you're definitely a bit notorious, I would <laughs> say, for having had a pretty adventurous existence up until joining our team. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey um, kind of beforehand and you know what brought you eventually to join the, the GYC team? But what were you up to before hanging out with us? Yeah, so I... Graduated with an undergraduate degree in wildlife biology in 2008, and since then was 
since I started working for GYC, um, was doing seasonal wildlife work. So variety of different things, but mostly working as a bear viewing guide on the coast of British Columbia and doing wildlife technician work as well um, throughout the year, but mostly wolverine work in the wintertime. So you are one of those exalted few who've actually seen a wolverine in the wild, I take it? I have, but I've never run into one just on my own backpacking or backcountry skiing, which I know a lucky few have. Mm -hmm. So although I've seen a lot, um, it was intentional trying to put a collar on one in a live trap. That sounds exciting to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) And bear viewing guides. So while most people are trying to avoid grizzly bears, you were um, doing something of the opposite. Yeah, so um, our lodge is on the central coast of British Columbia, and a lot of people from all over the world are dying to see grizzly bear in the wild. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, very remote, end of an inlet, mouth of a river, and only people out there. Um, So no roads. You have to either boat in or fly in Wow. and watch grizzly bears in there native habitat, their natural habitat, just being grizzly bears, which is pretty special. Mm, Yeah. No, that does sound incredible. So lots of time with bears and other uh, very charismatic critters up there in Canada and beyond. Uh, But what drew you to conservation work in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem? Yeah. So I ended up in this part of the world by working for the Tom Minor Basin Association. So located in the Tom Minor Basin, (laughs) which is also in the Paradise Valley. And doing ranch work for them, as well as helping them set up some grizzly bear research. Very cool. Yeah. So a lot of the work that you do with GYC today is centered in Paradise Valley, correct? Yeah. Can you describe that area for us? Yeah. So it's a pretty remarkable place. Um, You've got the Absorca Mountains on one side and the Gallatin Range on the other side. Uh, Really fertile habitat. So I can imagine before humans started developing here. It must have just been packed with wildflowers. So the Yellowstone River flows through it, and that's that valley encompasses kind of Livingston, Montana, mm-hmm. to Yellowstone National Park. Right. So for folks who are listening who maybe have visited Yellowstone, if they've gone through the northern entrance at Gardner, uh, they would have driven through Paradise Valley to get to the park, correct? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so full of wildlife, full of agriculture as well. So Mm -hmm. because of that fertile soil, you have a lot of ranching and agriculture, and it's a desirable place to live. Certainly. I mean, it's it's quite aptly named. Um, So I'm going to take a little leap here, but I'm assuming that the intersection of humans and wildlife, because it is a working ranching valley, and then like you said, also very rich with wildlife, is why perhaps Paradise Valley is a focus of quite a bit of your work. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so there's a lot of wildlife coming and going from the park, um, including large carnivores, ungulates, as well as back and forth from those two mountain ranges as Mm -hmm. well. And then you have a pretty substantial ranching population, and there's been more and more development Mm -hmm. as well over the years. So more people are moving into the valley, which creates that need for conflict mitigation. Right. So you have some families that have been here for multiple generations, but even those families are experiencing changes within the landscape, whether that's due to climate change, the extraction of wolves and now presence of wolves, mm-hmm. and then just the ever-evolving 
wildlife populations. Yeah, yeah. And Paradise Valley is somewhat known for the the very large herds of elk uh, that inhabit or frequent the valley. Um, Why do elk like to hang out there? Yeah, so there's two migrations of elk that go in and out of the park into Paradise Valley. So you have the northern Yellowstone herd and the Paradise Valley herd. And it is a very desirable place for Mm -hmm. elk to be um, with or without agriculture. Um, So in the past, you know, there must have just been tons of low elevation forage for them to eat. And now you have, on top of that, you have alfalfa growing (laughs) um, and irrigated pastures. And then, you know, you have the Yellowstone River as well. Mm -hmm. So a water resource for them. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like elk have always had a reason to come into Paradise Valley. Um, But now with a lot of agricultural land in the valley as well, perhaps there's an extra draw and then extra space for them to get in a bit of trouble. Is that right? So basically, I mean, like any wildlife, they're going to be where their food is. Mm -hmm. You have that migration from higher elevations in the summertime Mm -hmm. where there's more forage down into lower elevations in the wintertime when forage is easier to access. Right. Yeah. And so um, what are some of the challenges that elk find when they do move into the valley? And, you know, kind of what is the shape of the conflict with humans that they can run into there? Yeah. So um, I guess all manner of things, whether you're on a large piece of property on a ranch or on a small piece of property that has a delicious apple tree or garden Mm -hmm. (laughs) that Mm -hmm. might be appetizing food for them. So there's a variety of barriers that they run into when they enter the valley. Um, A major barrier being Highway 89. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of people visiting Yellowstone National Park and coming and going on Highway 89, which goes through the valley. Um, And you have different attractive food resources on either side of that highway, Mm -hmm. as well as the river on one side of the highway. Um, So that's a that's a huge barrier. Yeah. For the elk. Um, And there's a lot of elk and other wildlife that that get hit by vehicles every year. Mm -hmm. Um, Other another barrier that they might run into are fence lines. Mm -hmm. And so that could be damaging to either the fence or the wildlife itself. And that's a challenge. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So when elk encounter a fence, um, I'm guessing either they're going to be diverted or they're going to try to get over it, which could potentially damage the fence or try to get over under it, which could damage the elk. So it just sounds like that's, there's a lot of complications there. Yeah. And there's been a lot of work done changing the way that fences are built. So Mm -hmm. whether that's the height of the fence or the type of wire that's used or like the height of the lower wire, for example. So antelope or pronghorn will go underneath. Interesting. And so if you have smooth wire that's a little bit higher up, they don't run into as much issues. Okay. And you can still keep your livestock fenced in. Oh, okay. So how you design a fence could continue to contain your livestock, but might just be a little easier for a pronghorn to get under, an elk to get over, or another critter to pass through? Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's cool um, to hear. Let's see. Other... Sources of conflict uh, is just the competition that you have between elk and deer Mm -hmm. and livestock. So, and then just damage to crops as well. So when you say competition, are we talking like fist fights between cow and elk or (laughs) what (laughs) what kind of competition are we talking about? That'd be pretty cool. That'd be a whole other source of tourism. (laughs) Certainly. Um, 
just if you are if you're growing alfalfa let's say mm -hmm. and you're attracting elk into where you want your cattle to be grazing okay then um that could be you know that could be a huge loss sure and that could impact you financially if that is your alfalfa field right so that creates another source of conflict just yeah socially within the valley. So what are some of the things that you and your team are doing to help mitigate that conflict? What can we do about, you know, elk and humans and cattle trying to share the same space in this place? Yeah, so one project the Greater Yellowstone Coalition uh, actually just successfully accomplished was a elk occupancy agreement with one of the families in the valley. And so they have a large ranch in the Paradise Valley and a lot of attractive forage for elk, um, but they're also raising cattle. And so this has been done in Wyoming in the past, mm -hmm. but never before in Montana, where they, GYC as well as some other partners said, hey, you know, how about if we fence off a portion of your land and we put money aside into that fence as well as weed mitigation and just making that parcel as attractive as we can and not put the cattle in there, but just have it available for the elk. Oh, interesting. And so we can then separate the elk and the cattle. Okay. And so the main purpose of that was to avoid the transmission of brucellosis. Mm. And so brucellosis is a non-native bacterial disease that causes cattle elk and bison or buffalo mm -hmm. to abort right so that's a huge overline threat to the ranching community in the paradise valley sure yeah no totally makes sense so so this elk occupancy agreement is basically taking part of private land ranching land but setting it aside as elk habitat in a voluntary agreement with a rancher yes okay yeah and then that way the rancher can keep their cattle in one place, have a little parcel that elk are welcome to and know that everybody has what they need and don't have to co-mingle and potentially, you know, conflict, have conflict over resources, but also potentially transmit disease. Exactly. Okay. Very interesting. And so you said that's been done in other places around the ecosystem, but this one is new for Paradise Valley. Yeah. And I think Montana in general. Oh yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So that's a really interesting creative solution to that. So do yeah. you see that elk occupancy agreement as something that's going to be hopefully replicated uh, either in Paradise Valley or in other areas where there's similar conflict? It's definitely one of the tools in the toolbox for dealing with brucellosis. So you can vaccinate your cattle, but that's not 100% mm -hmm. effective. And so having things like elk occupancy agreements available is what's going to be able to have us all coexist. <laughs> Great. And so another example of something that folks are working on now uh, is a brucellosis compensation program. So you can say, hey, I'm a rancher. I want to be a part of this. And money will be set aside. So if, you, if your cattle get infected with brucellosis, you have to put your whole herd into quarantine mm for an average of a year, I believe, Oof. or slaughter them all. The money piles up, and a lot of ranchers, if they were infected with brucellosis, they would go underwater. So mm -hmm. it's a real threat. It's a real risk. <laughs> and um, so brucellosis compensation program would help 
subsidize that loss. Okay. So it would just be set aside unless your herd got infected, and then that money could be available to you. Okay. Other resources for, you know, mitigating that threat is hunting opportunities. Um, So the transmission from elk to cattle is what most people are worried about Mm -hmm. in the valley and in the greater Yellowstone as a whole. And so if you have hunting opportunities on private land, that also helps separate the cattle and the elk. Mm -hmm. Um, So elk will come down into the valley around hunting season because they're like, oh, it's hunting season. I'm going to go into private land. Oh. So they definitely know. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I couldn't tell you specifics, but they definitely know what hunting is. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you've got a ton of elk on your property, you can call the state and say, hey, can we set up a special hunt? Oh, okay. And you can also apply for private property hunting tags. And there's also Paradise Valley Ranch in the valley. And they open up opportunities for hunting for anybody. Mm-hmm. So it's not an outfitter. You don't have to pay a bunch of money to go hunt on the land. Basically, if you're a hunter in the area, you can just apply for a permit to hunt on their property. Okay. Okay. Wow. So yeah, there sounds like there's quite a large range of tools then for either helping reduce transmission and risk or just helping people and all coexist. Yeah. So interesting. Um, you mentioned early on doing some work on the highway itself and possibly setting up future opportunities for crossings. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So um, Greater Yellowstone Coalition is part of a partnership called Yellowstone Safe Passages. And so that is agencies, landowners, foundations, and a few other NGOs, as well as community members. And that was started. So there's been a few attempts in the past to implement wildlife crossings on Highway 89. It's been known for a while that it's a huge source of wildlife vehicle conflict. Mm -hmm. So just over time, you know, you've got more visitors going into the park. Right to and from the park. I think last year there was over 4 million visitors to Yellowstone. Pretty remarkable. And Gardner is one of the main entrances. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the work that we're doing is a lot of just communication with landowners. So most of that property on either side of the highway is private. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those relationships really need to be formed with those landowners. If you're going to put it an overpass or a potential underpass or even just fencing Mm -hmm. along their property. There has to be a lot of communication and agreement that happens there. And then we also work with Montana Department of Transportation and Fish, Wildlife, and Parks very closely because they're huge. Yeah, pretty important. (laughs) Huge partners in the whole (laughs) process. You know, as you're talking, it strikes me that people – visit Yellowstone for many reasons, but the wildlife is certainly a huge draw. And, you know, many folks may not really realize or think about how um, even on their journey to the park, they're moving through really wildlife rich country. And so it's interesting that that risk of having that conflict um, exists, you know, outside the park. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you see people that are in such a hurry to get to the park, and they may not even realize that they drove past a grizzly bear right. or a huge herd of elk closer than they would see it in the park. Yeah. 
And anyone who listened to episode four of this very podcast, which is all about wildlife crossings, um, you can hear a lot more about our work in that space. And one thing we really do try to emphasize is local solutions, you know, tailor made solutions for the community because there really isn't a one size fits all approach to constructing um, wildlife crossing infrastructure. So it is really important to uh, collaborate with local folks and uh, make sure that you have the best solution for that particular area. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about conflict and a lot of the different innovative tools that we are working toward using to manage all kinds of different issues in the valley. So we have fencing work and we have elk occupancy agreements and we have um, collaboration moving in the direction of figuring out wildlife crossing solutions for the highway. You know, if all of these things, let's, let's kind of cast our minds into the future a bit. If all these things are working together in tandem, what's your vision for the future of the valley and for coexistence in particular? Oh man, so in a perfect world, <laughs> I guess first of all, yeah, you'd want to maintain those important corridors for that elk migration, for grizzly bear movement, mm -hmm. for all the other species on the landscape to come and go as they need to in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And with all the new people that are moving into the area, you know, myself included, mm -hmm. I think that educating people on exactly where they are and where they've moved into is really important. Um, Somebody may move into the valley and not realize that they could have a bear in their backyard right. eating apples off their apple tree. Right. Um, or that they may be going for a hike and they might run into a herd of elk. They might not have any idea mm -hmm. until they actually get here. So, and educating everybody, educating people of the importance of working lands. So without these ranches on the landscape, um, you run the risk of that huge swath of land becoming developed. Right. And that would be detrimental yeah. for the valley. You know, you hit on something really interesting there, which was the role that working lands and ranches have to play in keeping landscapes open, right? Because if ranches are no longer viable, um, it's not like the family is just going to take off and that land is going to stay open. The more likely outcome is that that land is going to become developed, right? Um, and the way that our population is growing, it's likely going to be a subdivision, which yeah. is not going to be the easiest thing for wildlife to move through, right? No, definitely not. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned education for all of us, right? And it is, it does seem like there is a lot that we could all do to be better citizens of our ecosystem, you know, whether better, you know, parts of our human communities and sort of more informed and aware members of the ecosystem itself. Yeah, Definitely. It all comes back to communication, huh? Just yeah. Well, I certainly believe that. <laughs> I might be a little biased, though. <laughs> As a communication specialist. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, you know, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your personal connection to the land. Do you have any stories you can share with us from Paradise Valley in particular or any wildlife encounters that you've had in the ecosystem that were particularly memorable? Yeah, I guess what comes to mind is the first is the sandhill crane migration. Mm. So I don't think that'll ever get old. Yeah. Um, they do a special little dance during the mating season <laughs> while they'll jump up and down and make noise. And you could see flocks of, you know, hundreds or more 
of the cranes in the at the right time of the year when they're migrating through. Yeah. They really are remarkably special. Like they you never get tired of seeing them and they seem almost like a creature from another era somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you there. And working on a ranch, you know, you realize about all the little guys, mm-hmm. like nematodes in the soil. Nematodes. A nematode, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so well, you know. We tend to focus on the big charismatic species right. in the valley, the elk, the bison, the grizzly bears, the wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, there is so much more going on in this valley than just those critters. Everybody's important. Everybody has a role to play. So in short, why do you do this work, Blakely? So I feel like I've been pretty lucky overall in terms of being able to do this kind of work still. Yeah. Um, as... A child, I mean, what child doesn't love being outside Mm -hmm. and looking at critters? Yeah. (laughs) And um, I guess that just evolved after getting a a degree in wildlife biology and being able to do wildlife work. Was there a a moment when you were a kid where you knew you wanted to work with critters? Like, can you trace that back to kind of a defining moment or is there something you've always carried with you? Yeah, so, I mean... When I was six, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> like most six-year-olds. Yeah. And when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to study abroad and go to Costa Rica and Nicaragua. And while I was in Costa Rica, I met some graduate students who were studying wildlife. And I thought, oh my God, you can study howler monkeys <laughs> for a living? Well, that's what I want to do. So I would trace it back to that moment when I realized you could study howler monkeys and not just have to be a veterinarian. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's actually kind of a perfect lead into my next question, which is, um, do you have a conservation or science hero? I would say, I mean, we all look at folks like David Attenborough, and it's Mm -hmm. hard to not be in awe of somebody like David Attenborough, but the people that have really influenced me personally, are folks that I've been lucky enough to work with that have inspired me and made me, you know, more inquisitive, made me want to ask ask those questions yeah. <laughs> about and learn more. And my two bosses in British Columbia are a great example of that, that run the Bear Viewing Lodge, mm-hmm. just constantly make you want to do better and learn more and be appreciative of where you live and the work that you do, Mm -hmm. and I mean, I couldn't tell you how many times they've seen a grizzly bear, and they're just as excited to get back out there and go see another grizzly bear, so folks like that, yeah, I would say are my, my heroes. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great, that's absolutely wonderful, it definitely, yeah, it takes a, a particular kind of person to get really excited, you know, about the same thing all the time, and like to really appreciate the beauty in that moment that they're in yeah and just that you know that infectious nature yeah when you're around them Mm -hmm. that you could have people coming in that might think oh it's pretty boring to be out there for four hours and never see a bear and they change those people's mind Mm. you know yeah they're like hey but check out that raven flying over us let me tell you about ravens and yeah very cool 
Yeah, enthusiasm and earnestness are really beautiful things. Yeah. All right, Blakely, we do have a handful of listener questions for you. The first one is coming at you from Linda from Wisconsin. And we did actually touch on this a bit, so maybe we can just put a finer point on it. But Linda's curious about if elk wintering on private land would be accessible to hunters. And it sounded like you, you there were some instances of folks who could open up their private land to hunting. So you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it's it's basically up to the landowner. I'm not a hunter myself, mm-hmm. so I don't have an extensive knowledge with this. But um, yeah, I think there's a few different opportunities for hunting, whether it's you could have an outfitting operation on your land and open that up to mm-hmm. people that would, I think you have, you know, a cap on how many animals that you can hunt off your land, mm-hmm. but open that up to whoever to pay money and come onto your property and, and hunt. Um, and then you can also, let's say you didn't have a outfitting operation, but you thought, oh, geez, you know, elk have, are really inundating my property this year. Um, I'm going to call up Fish, Wildlife, and Parks and see what my options are. And I think that you can have, you know, a special permit to okay. kill some elk on your property. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Paradise Valley Ranch. As I mentioned before, mm-hmm. they kind of have a unique setup where they open up opportunity to anybody. So mm-hmm. as long as you are a hunter, you can put in a, um, I guess, in a lottery system okay. to have the opportunity to hunt on that private land. Okay. So For no extra cost. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So it's not like um, elk that are hanging out on, you know, future elk occupancy agreements will necessarily be off limits. There are some circumstances in which um, folks can have hunters come in to their private land. Okay, moving on. Um, Sally from Montana is wondering if you'd be willing to share any particularly memorable or perhaps even harrowing moments from your guiding years. Oh, boy. (laughs) Um. I guess that, I mean, for the most part, guiding, you just be watching bears Mm -hmm. doing their thing. And so in the springtime and summer, they're grazing on sedge predominantly and basically look like cattle out there in the (laughs) estuary. (laughs) Um, And then in the fall, they're fishing for salmon. And so that's a unique part of the world where you have so much food available in the fall Mm -hmm. that... Some bears, you'll wonder if they even know that you're there. <laughs> oh, they there's so much food available and they're so focused on fishing. So after guiding for 11 years, it's easy to get a little bit, have your ego get the best of you, mm-hmm. which I'll fully admit to, or get a little complacent. Um, and so we're lucky enough to have a few bears out there that test that. <laughs> and one bear in particular, um, who we called Roxanne. <laughs> Um, She was the only bear for the entire existence of that lodge that got bear sprayed. (laughs) Oh my. Okay. And so she was a little sassy. She's probably still out there now, (laughs) but basically just said, you know, no, I'm going to tell what you guys what to do humans. Right. So you're in her backyard and getting a little comfortable and Roxanne's like, actually, I'm going to remind you who's boss. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I think most of the guides had... At least one experience with her. Okay. Where 
She just said, no, why don't you back down? Oh. I'm not backing down from you. Why there don't you, you be the one to back down? Which is a good reminder, mm-hmm. you know, that sure. us as humans don't always have the upper hand when it comes to yeah. critters like grizzly bears. Well, stay spicy, Roxanne. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, another question for you. Aaron from Washington, D.C. is curious to know how climate change uh, is impacting elk habitat. Yeah, so what comes to mind with that question is last summer specifically. So we had a really, really dry Mm -hmm. summer here, and that impacted not only elk, but, you know, us as humans. Yeah. Shut down fishing for certain times of the day because the river was so warm. Um, And then when it comes to wildlife, elk, for example, you know, they their forage is dried out in places that maybe they weren't expecting it to be dried out. And so there was a lot more elk congregating on private land. Mm. So if you had a nice pasture of irrigated alfalfa, yeah, you better believe that (laughs) there's going to be more elk there. Um, So that impacts ranching, that impacts wildlife, that impacts, you know, yeah. Brings more elk down into the valley and more wildlife vehicle conflict. Yeah. No, that is a really interesting point. So while we have a drought that is impacting ranchers and their ability to support their cattle, their food source is also becoming much more appealing to wildlife who are sh- being stressed by the same conditions. Right. And then that competition too. Yeah. So, you know, you're trying to feed your cattle, mm-hmm. but you've got this competition with the elk and the deer and then hay prices go up and so it all just snowballs yeah certainly yeah well on that sunny note (laughs) (laughs) um no that uh, that really is an interesting uh, thing to think about because you're working on a specific set of challenges now and also i would imagine have to stay pretty in tune to the way that those challenges are going to evolve as conditions change in the future so we'll have to stay scrappy and stay creative Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Creativity, I think, is the the name of the game when it comes to conservation. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Blakely, it has been incredibly wonderful to have you. It is always so interesting and such a treat to talk to you. And we are really grateful that you spent some time with us today. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It was great. We'll catch up with you soon. Sounds good. Clearly, there are a lot of challenges facing Paradise Valley's iconic elk herds and the people who share the landscape with them. But there are also a lot of creative, committed folks working on innovative ideas to keep open lands open, livelihoods intact, and wildlife moving across it all safely. Blakely, thank you so much for joining us. We shared a lot of laughs and learned a bunch about elk, your work, and the beautiful landscape you call home. The Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast is produced by the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, a nonprofit dedicated to working with all people to protect the lands, waters, and wildlife of this special ecosystem. If you're interested in supporting our work, there's a link in the show notes that will take you to a donation page. People like you make our work possible, so thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Happy 2022, and we'll see you next time.